Hi, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by the Veterans Association Food Bank. You can find them at veteransassociationfoodbank.ca. They are dedicated to supporting and enriching the lives of veterans and their families. As a community of veterans helping veterans, they support the base where together they create healthy and resilient futures. They do more than just feed veterans in need. There's all kinds of programs that they have to support the veteran community. So please consider giving veteransassociationfoodbank.ca. Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. Welcome to another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today on the show, I am so happy to have a motorcycle riding... (laughs) Horse bucking. Oh, man. <laughs> bull taming country music star, Paul Brandt. It's great to be here with you. Thanks, brother. Yeah, I thanks appreciate for having it. me. This is awesome. I'm just upset now that I invited uh, the next guy that's coming on here back to back because I wanted to ride back to Cochrane oh, with you. Oh, man, that would have been good. Well, I'll have to make another trip out here. You'll have it's to, It's a for great sure. ride and a beautiful day for it. You didn't take the 40, did you? Uh, I didn't, but I might on the way back. Oh, yeah. That's so good. <laughs> It'll be good. Yeah. It's, uh, no, I mean, the 40 is a terrible drive. Don't come out here and try it. We have enough people as it is. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Do you recognize the shirt that I'm wearing? Do you know this organization? I don't. I don't. So I had Craig Sawyer on the show. Okay. He's a SEAL Team 6 guy. Yes, yes. I know his name. My, yeah. my son has decided that he uh, uh, thinks that his path to the presidency um, is going to be a Navy SEAL and uh, then lawyer and then president someday is, is his okay. plan. So we'll see what happens on All that right. front. But yeah, t- tell me about him. So Craig Sawyer, uh, Navy, a SEAL Team 6 guy, uh, and then realized all the child sex trafficking that's going on in the world and now he's door kicking for that and he's built this foundation so he's got a bunch of special operators together and that's what they do they flush these sons of guns out and uh see him off to jail yeah so he works in concert with uh, different law enforcement agencies and whatnot And uh, I bought one of his shirts. He didn't send it to me. So I like, okay, I'll I'll support you. Support it. That's very cool. Here's here's my fifty dollar T shirt. B four C R. Yeah, very cool. Veterans for a Child Rescue. Love it. Uh, Before we get into that part, though, um, let's roll back the clock a little bit. Uh, Music is your second career. Yes. 
you were a registered nurse. You went to school and everything. Was it the two year at the time or a four year degree? It was a well, it was a two year, and you kind of went two and a half. Like you went through the summer of the second year, and there were a, there was a shortage of nurses, and they were trying to really push people through and and give them incentive to be able to get out there and get in the field right away. And so it was a great opportunity for me. My um, my goal. Um, you talk about first responders. My father's a paramedic, and he was okay. for about forty three years. Holy um, my mom, I know, and and I mean, I you know, I think that. Anyone who's done it that long has definitely experienced their share of trauma. And, and uh, I remember, yeah. uh, I'll get back to the nursing, but I remember dad coming home sometimes and um, I, I, you know, as a kid say, hey, what, you know, what was your uh, day like? And, and he would look at me and say, I, I don't really even remember. And it would be a, a week sometimes, a week or two, and he'd be like, wow, I had a bad call. And he would just sort of compartmentalize it and sort of put it out there and, and, uh, and then come back to it. And I think it's pretty remarkable, you know, that he was able to, you know, for that many, that many years, uh, push through and, and uh, do the job and do what needed to be done for others. Um, but I think that he definitely had some, uh, some uh, trauma that came from that. And, and I, I wanted to follow in his footsteps on the first responder front. Uh, I wanted to actually end up in ICU and, and be on the Stars Air Ambulance. And um, that was the goal. Like I, I was going to um, eventually get my degree. I might have tried to uh, push my way into med school at some point, but I loved working as a registered nurse. And I got the job in ICU um, and was just getting ready to do my advanced cardiac life support training. And I got a record deal in the same week. And oh. I had to decide what I was going to do with my life. And, and everything kind of took off from there. Yeah. Did you make the right choice? Well, you know, it's tough. Like you go back to those moments in life where there are the crossroads, you know, and, and I loved working uh, at the children's hospital here and, and um, love helping that, you know, I think the helping profession is, is something that, that um, inspiration to be in a helping profession is something that people who are first responders, people who are military um, all have in common. You know, um, we want to do something that's going to make a difference. It's going to help. And uh, I thought I was going to lose that opportunity when I got into music. And, uh, and I realized that you can pretty much use any platform that you have um, if you stay other focused um, to help other people. And, and so, you know, I, I don't know if it was, it was um, right, wrong decision. It's a matter of focus and, and what you're going to push it towards. And we still get to do a lot of good with this job. So it's fun. You've made some interesting choices that um, other music stars don't. And uh, I wonder how it affected your career positively or negatively. So two of those choices, one, um, working in the space of uh, child rescue and child advocacy. Did that help you, hurt you, or none of the above? I don't know. I wonder if I won't know until I'm gone someday, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I always have looked at my life um, from the grave back. That's always been sort of an exercise that I go through when I'm making big decisions. I ask myself, you know, looking back from that moment, um, would I regret this or not? And uh, so to me, you know, recently we had the opportunity to, I, I had the opportunity to chair a task force for the province for the last two years um, to bring recommendations uh, to address and suppress human trafficking in the province. And, um, you know, we, we turned in our recommendations, uh, 19 recommendations, 18 were accepted. The 19th is under review for acceptance. I felt like it was a great success, but the moment that um, I realized yeah, we're doing the right thing here. Um, I got two separate messages from trafficking, former trafficking victims, trafficking survivors. And they both said independently from each other, uh, in your report, I feel like we were finally heard. To me, that, that's a win. 
And, and I look at that through the lens of, of uh, you know, advocating for people who've been um, victims of human trafficking. But I look at it through the lens of being a celebrity. Um, I don't see how you could see it any other way. Um, you're using the platform to do something that literally is changing somebody's life. And, and uh, I'm honored, I, you know, honored and humbled to be in a position like this, um, both at the same time. It's, um, it's a wonderful, you know, it's just a wonderful thing. I, I love making connections with people. That's one of the reasons I, I you know, accepted your invitation. Um, for me, this is what life's all about. Well, I appreciate it. No, it's good. Uh, you know, that's for sure. The, the second choice that you've made that is um, one that people don't typically make in your profession is uh, doing gospel music. I mean, some did. You know, Dolly Parton sure. uh, would do some. I think she even had a gospel album or two. Yeah. Um, that is something that uh, people tend to avoid as well, though. Did that help you? hurt you or none of the above? I don't know. I, you know, I, I looked at people like Dolly and Elvis and I thought, you know, these are the people that I've always looked up to um, musically um, and they did this. So I think it would probably be a, be a good thing. Um, there are a number of reasons for me, um, just musically, um, the roots of, of country music are very connected to gospel. Um, have you been to Nashville before? Uh, unfortunately, okay, you not. gotta go. It's on. It's on the list, it, brother. It's, it's on the list. It, it's changed so much, you know, since uh, I was down there first in 1996. But um, that that back alley is sort of the, one of the things that will never change. I, I think um, between the Ryman Auditorium and Tootsie's Wild Orchid Lounge, and and you know the Ryman uh, historically in Nashville. Um, was uh, was a church. That's why they call it the Mother Church of Country Music. The Captain Ryman was a riverboat captain, and uh, he was um, he was a, a great businessman in Nashville. He had um, uh, like casinos and bars, and and he was making a boatload of money. And um, there was a, a traveling preacher who came through town that was holding a tent revival uh, series, and it was not good for business. Um, you know, cause nobody was coming to the casino. They were all going to church. And so he decided with a bunch of buddies, they were going to head down to this, uh, this tent revival meeting and they were going to heckle the preacher. So down goes riverboat captain, uh, Ryman. And, uh, he listens to the, to the service and, uh, he decided that this, this preacher was saying something of value. And so he, uh, had a conversion experience and, and became a Christian. And he told, uh, the, um, the preacher, you're never going to preach in a tent again. And he built him. Uh, the Ryman Auditorium, which is now now known as the Ryman Auditorium. So for years, it was a church. Then it fell into disrepair and eventually was revitalized by an insurance company called the National Life Insurance Company. And the newfangled way of reaching people at that time um, was through radio. And so they decided to start a radio program that ended up being called the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, they would hire these hillbilly singers to come out from wherever they were and Often they would come in from these rural areas and sing gospel music. And so you'd get Hank Williams up on stage and he would sing, I saw the light. And then he would stagger across the back alley to Tootsie's and have a couple. And then he'd come back on and and sing Amazing Grace or whatever. And, um, And so that back alley has sort of become known in country music as that fine line between heaven and hell. You know, it's like kind of walking the line, right? And and I love the metaphor of that, just musically and the history of all those things. Um, but then from the time I was about six years old, my parents took us to a church in Calgary, not far from here. And um, it was all acapella gospel music. There were no instruments allowed. Um, yeah. And a very pure way of, of um, approaching music and singing. And uh, so those are really my roots. So it was just, it was natural. And uh, so I think that, again, this is one of those things that probably helped 
you know. Um, but uh, I guess it depends also on your definition of success too, right? How old were you when you uh, wrote your first song? Probably about 13. Um, But I I think I was writing songs before then. Um, That church that we attended, there were no instruments allowed. And I had this music inside of me. I could feel it. And we sang all the time. Um, But the preachers that would come through would speak on the uh, King James version of the Bible. So it was the old English version. And they would do these word studies where they would tear the original words apart to the the Greek and the Latin and uh, and the Hebrew and that kind of thing. And I was fascinated by it as a kid. And so I kind of became a word nerd. Wasn't the the Bible originally written in Aramaic? Aramaic. Though? There's a lot of Aramaic as well, yeah. That's not on Duolingo, you know. No, not so much. <laughs> I've been looking. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was I was diving into these word meanings and writing poetry. And from the time I was about 6 years old, I just had I just wanted to write. Yeah. And uh when I got a guitar at 13, um and I put those poems together with the music, I realized, wait a minute, I, you know, I think I'm a songwriter and it all kind of took off from there. And then that was it. Yeah. Did your parents always support you? Yeah, they were, I I mean, over and above. You know, uh, I was the teenager at 16 knocking on their door at 2 in the morning going, I had a really cool idea. You got to hear this. And my dad, I just, I I think about that now as a parent with a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old. And if they were smashing on my door, I'd be like, go back to bed. And my parents (laughs) would listen to my music and, you know, come to all the different contests that I played in and shows. And um, they were very, very supportive. There was no avoiding this for you. Yeah, you know, I don't think I don't think that I thought I really believed that it was something that was going to happen from a music like from a professional I'm going to do this for a living standpoint. Um but I, I don't think I ever shut the dream down. It was it was just one of those things where maybe it was like, well, it would be like winning the lottery. Like wouldn't that be nice? And in the meantime, I'm going to just keep doing it. And you know, younger artists that uh, come to me, people who are just starting out and say, you know, what's the secret? I tell them that, you know, it's about doing it regardless. Like you do it because you love it. It, You do it because it's what you were made to do. And whether you are playing for an audience of one um, or for a hundred thousand, you you go into it with the same passion and some pretty amazing things can happen. Uh, I came home from work at the hospital one day. I was still mooching off my parents, you know, living at home and, and uh, dad sitting on the couch with this sort of shell shocked look on his face. And he says, there's a message on the phone. So I, I pick up the phone, push the button, and and I hear this voice from uh, Tennessee. Hey, my name's Paige Levy. I'm with Warner Reprise Nashville. I signed D. White Yoakum to the record company, and I heard your demo. I think you're real good. I want to come up and hear you and your band play. You give me a call. And I'm like, okay. You know, so I, I call her back. I'm like, sure, come on up. I hung up the phone. I picked up the phone. I called a buddy. I'm like, dude, you have to help me put a band together. I didn't have a band. You know, I was, I was playing for friends and family in my basement yeah. or out of coffee shops. And overnight, my life just absolutely shifted. And, and we played a, about a month later, we played at the Longhorn in Calgary back when it was still there, right, right next to the Ranchman's. And, um, she liked it enough that we signed a record deal that next week, and uh, it, my life just changed forever. Any of those original band members still part of the group? Those were local band members from Calgary, and uh, most of those guys were session players locally here who had kind of already done their thing out on the road. And so when I moved to Nashville, I started putting my actual band together down there. And, and uh, of all of those guys, my steel player is the one who 25 years later is still with me, and uh, we're uh, getting together here pretty soon to start shows again uh, this summer. Nice. Yeah, it'll be fun. How did you fall into um, the world of child rescue and sex trafficking? What was your 
awakening moment where you're like, holy shit, that's really a thing. Yeah. So um, we were watching uh, this documentary. So when, when, like my wife travels with me, um, or she did a lot more before the kids. We were doing about 180 shows a year in those early days. And just like you're living in a bus and you're a FedEx package, like you're just doing shows. And so it was busy. And that had started to taper off to a little bit more of a manageable schedule, but we were still quite busy on the road. And we watched a documentary on Dateline NBC called Children for Sale. And, you know, back then, um, and still today in some circles, people talked a lot about child rescue. And I think that there's still an aspect of, of rescue, um, but it, it infers an ideology um, that um, people need to rush in, grab someone and pull them out. And, and, and that actually does still happen. Um, but we also see a dynamic of trafficking where it's about walking alongside somebody um, in the situation that they're in and offering opportunities for them to be able to exit. And, and there's two different ways of looking at that. But there's also a spectrum when you look at, at, at um, human trafficking uh, victims and survivors of their understanding of the situation that they're in. And then you also get into the child side of things. When it's a child, we, we definitely know that... It's kind of like a cult, isn't it? Like where the victims don't even necessarily realize that they're a victim at that time it, absolutely there's 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 this um, trauma bond that that can form and um you know what we can get into the dynamics of all of that too but i i, I was watching the documentary um there's an organization called the international justice mission that works with law enforcement and and uh, people in the justice community to bring justice to areas all around the world uh, using the laws of the land wherever they happen to find themselves and one of the big issues at that time was um uh, these child brothels in in southeastern Asia and Cambodia. Um, this would have been back in about two thousand um, two thousand five, I believe, and and so this this was just starting to come to um, international awareness. Um, you know, under Cambodian law at that time, children were actually seen as owned property if they happened to be in these brothels. That's changed now, but back then, that's what it was like. Yeah, and it was very controversial. Um, they did an undercover sting with the police um, at a child brothel where they were going to rush in and rescue, and they filmed the whole thing. And it was controversial because they knew that because the law was the way that it was, that, that they were going to, you know, quote, rescue these children, but they were going to have to take them right back. And and so um, uh, people were wondering if it was worth, you know, if it was worth, the, if the juice was worth the squeeze on this one, right? And they decided that it was because it would raise the awareness. I mean, you know, you see something like that for the first time, it's, some, it's hard to even believe that it's true, you know, um, that busloads and plane loads of men from around the world would go to another country to have sex with children. Like, I, I mean, you let that sink in for a minute and you go, oh, how can this be happening? And, and so for my wife and I, it was sort of a shocker. And um, we took a step back and sort of tucked that away. And then... Um, an international organization that does humanitarian work approached us and asked us to go to one of 90 countries around the world just to see the work that they were doing. And they said, you could pick any country you want to go to. And we said, we'll go to Cambodia with the thought that maybe we could learn more about the child trafficking issue. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of our journey. We actually, on that trip, um, we were exposed to an organization they were poorly resourced, but they had enough to be able to pay the rate that someone would have paid to rent a child for the day. And they took those children and they brought them to a safe location and let them just be kids. 
But still, in, at that time, under Cambodian law, they were seen as owned property. So at the end of the day, they had to take them back. And that shattered us. It shattered uh, my wife in particular, and, and uh, she ended up having some uh, very serious um, health effects that came uh, as a result of that uh, instance and, and sent us on our journey. Um, it made a dent, and uh, we realized that this was going to be a part of our lives forever. That sense of helplessness, helplessness Paul, is uh, exactly the problem with United Nations tours, peacekeeping mm-hmm. tours. Mm-hmm. Um, no need to get into the war porn of it, but uh, some of the things that we see and the rules of engagement pro- preclude you from doing anything about it. Yeah. You just sit there as an observer. Yeah. Um, we were unbelievable. We were at, um, on an S4. We went to um, uh, Bosnia. Um, it was actually my first helicopter flight. Um, what type and, of chopper were you in? Uh, we were in Blackhawk. Okay. And uh, I, I love helicopters, but at that time, this is the first time. And uh, we have some, um, some uh, you know, um, uh, Air Force and, and services background in our family. My, my wife's father um, was uh, in the U.S. Air Force. He, he flew saber jets in Korea. And so she loves everything to do with flying. And, uh, um, you know, it was a big part of their lives. When he came back from Korea, he taught Top Gun and, and uh, was down at Luke Air Force Base. And so we were, we're very proud of that history in our family. And uh, so we, we got over there playing for the USO. And, and um, we uh, get in the helicopter, you know, 4.30. And, and um, I've got my cowboy hat, you know, between my legs. We had flak jackets, helmets. You could hear bombing going off in the background. Um, the Marines were just getting ready to come in at the end of that operation. And uh, we were playing for Canadian and u.s troops and they start to lift off what year would that have been about 98 99 yeah, yeah right around then yeah yeah and liz um liz says to the pilot why don't you show us what this bad boy could do and i'm thinking oh no <laughs> i remember hearing them chuckle in the background and that that bird just went like thousand feet straight up you know <laughs> and they're yanking and banking a bit and and you know showing us the countryside and uh i looked down as we were coming down um in, into the landing zone and and whereabouts in bosnia were you um we were in tusla Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, a few different areas around there that I, I can't recall right now, but, um, we were going to remote communications outpost 722 is what it was called. And there were four guys up there, um, you know, uh, observing and, uh, we were going to go play some songs for them. So as we're coming down, um, you know, they had the landing zone surrounded. They're looking up at us and in between two, you know, big soldiers, um, was a little boy, and he was holding this bright yellow toy Camaro car. And he's just wearing rags, and he's staring up at the helicopter. I'll never forget it. And uh, we landed, and I get out, and I'm finding my legs again. You know, I thought I was going to have to use my cowboy hat for an air sickness bag. It was brutal. Like, I was, I was not feeling great. And this young pilot walks up to me, and he whips his sunglasses off. He says, sir, when we get back to main base, none of that happened. Puts the glasses back on and walks <laughs> away. And uh, um, we jumped into a, a Humvee and started heading up the hill. And uh, this soldier um, got him. He, he uh, uh, you know, st- stored his weapon, and, and he's driving up the hill. And uh, I said, what was, what's with that little kid? Like, who is that little boy? And uh, he had you know, sunglasses on. I couldn't see his eyes. He said that, you know, I've been here for three months now, and I've got uh, four boys at home. And uh, you see a tear come down his face. He says, that kid's an orphan of this war. And he said, and he reminded me of what my job is here. I had that car sent over here for him. And I'll never forget that. You, know, you talk about those rules of engagement and those feelings of helplessness. Um, but he looked for a way 
um, and he found meaning in what he was doing. Um, I found, you know, a, a real variety of people who wanted to be there, people who thought that they shouldn't be there, uh, people who were mixed on whether they should be there or not. Um, but the people who thrived are the people who, who found purpose. Um, and in their situation, in their own sphere of influence, they found a way. And uh, I was really inspired by that. It was really cool. When the Afghanistan withdrawal happened, uh, I did a few emergency broadcasts addressing it directly because I knew that there was going to be all kinds of suicides uh, from veterans that had served. Uh, I've never been in Afghanistan. Lots of friends that have. And I knew where their head would go, that, oh, my God, it's all for nothing. Yeah, what did we do it for? What did we do it for? But the truth is, though, it's all in the moment. What you did was in the moment. You know, um, when I was in Croatia in 94, it was in the middle of the war. Yeah. So while we were there, nobody was shooting each other because they couldn't because we were in the middle saying, uh-uh, not today, boys. Right, right. And so for that time, they were safe. They could go to school. They could just be okay, you know, yeah. and um, that's all you can do is for that time. And and just because I, one year after we were there, the purge happened. Yep. And all the Serbs were just culled as uh, they swept through all of Croatia and anybody that was left standing was dead. Um, And all the, just run or die. That was your choice. And um, that happened one year after I was there. So all these families, all these villages that I was in, all of it, right. They would just be nothing left. Um, But when I was there, they were safe and that's what you got to hang on to. Yeah. I believe that. You know, I, I think that um, you do the best you can with what you have in that moment. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, um, my, my wife has given me the permission to share a little bit of her story. One of the reasons that she ended up um, being impacted <clears throat> so deeply from that trip um, was a, a, a past history of being abused when she was a child. And it brought a lot of those those emotions up. It reopened that, that wound again. And, um, you know, uh, when she got back and, and was recovering, and she's doing great now, um, she found a lot of solace and a, a lot of um, utility in finding people who were like-minded, who had gone through similar situations, to have that support group. And I know that that's a part of you know the work that, that you've done as well. And, and um, being able to talk to somebody who can understand, maybe not completely empathize, but understand some of the stuff that you've been through um, is really empowering. And, and, um, and then there, there does come a point <clears throat> where, you know, on your own time, um, you start to turn that inward looking and all that inside work that needs to be done outward. And you start to look for ways to use it. And um, she's found um, a lot of strength and power in being able to um, take those horrible things that happened to her and then use them, you know, with, with people who have been abused or people who have been trafficked. Um, she finds a connection with them immediately because there's, there's sort of a standard that they can kind of um, use in, in between the two of them. And, um, and all you can really do is, is do what you can within your sphere of influence. And one of the biggest issues that she talks about dealing with is the issue of control. What do we actually have control of? Um, that's a big question. Not a lot. Not a lot. Not, Not as much as we'd like to think you're we You're right. Do. You know, and, and I think when we start to grapple with that issue of control, um, you know, it can be scary at first, but uh, it can also be very freeing. Our mutual friend, Theo Fleury, talks yeah. about ultimate surrender. Mm. And 
and that's how he lives now. You know, he just surrenders to the universe yeah. and it just says yes to things and just goes with the flow and doesn't fight against anything. And there's a lot of freedom in that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is. I think that, um, you know, finding, finding something that you're, you're going to put your trust or put your faith in, in, in one way or another. And I think, you know, for some people that's, um, about spiritual belief and, you know, a belief in God. Um, for some people, it's science, you know, for some people, it's, it's personal ability, you know, I mean, you know, everyone's got to find something that um, they're going to put their trust and they're going to put their faith in. And, um, and I think that, you know, since the dawn of time, um, it's one of those things that helps us in our human experience to be able to go, yeah, I can't control this, I just got to do the best I can, you know, and, uh, and leave it up to whatever forces I'm trusting. How has this impacted you being in this space? Have you seen have you seen symptoms of injury on yourself with all the stories that you know and the work that you've done with children? You know, it's it's one of those things um again, the control piece, right? Um it can get so frustrating sometimes. Um when you see um lack of action or lack of urgency in action. Um you know, when you talk to another, um, you know, person who was victimized when they were six years old or seven years old, um, you know, a 10-year-old trafficked by her parents in British Columbia, you know, um, you know, you know that on the dark web in investigations, police are hearing things like, I can't get it to Calgary, but we deliver to the border. And they're talking about people. Um, when you know that the reality is that this is a $150 billion a year industry, and we know that it is, and it's been over 20 years in Canada now, and we're still just scratching the surface, that can get pretty frustrating sometimes. There's an election uh, coming up, a uh, leadership thing. You got a shout out from Pierre Polyev. Yeah, I saw that. He, he yeah. was doing uh, a little bit of brown nose, and I think, by dropping <laughs> your name, you know. It's always good to have a fan. Pandering, that's the word. That's the, that's the word I was looking for, pandering. But uh, pandering to the Alberta crowd. Paul Brand's my favorite. He's like, oh, oh, that's cool, dude, but come on, pander. I thought it was good. At least he knew the, the lyrics enough to be able to quote some of them. So. I heard as a history. That's great. But um, we never hear it on their platform. Pierre's talking about all kinds of neat stuff that I'm like, yeah, that's good, man. That's good. I, I like that. And child sex trafficking? Hello. Yeah, you know, I, that was one thing um, I was really thankful for. I mean, there's been a ton of shakeup in politics and over over uh, uh, COVID and all the things that have happened. Um, it was one of the things that I was actually really impressed with and really thankful for in um, in Premier Kenny's platform. Um, you know, I, I don't like to get into politics. And, and when he asked me to uh, chair this task force, I, I told him that. I, I just said, my goal in, in the work that I do is to ensure that the issue of human trafficking does not become uh, political football. Um, it's, it's too sacred and too big an issue um, to not be something that is addressed by both sides. And so I did reach out and had a, a good hour-long conversation um, with uh, with Rachel Notley on this issue as well. And I just said, look, I'm, we're taking politics out of this. This is about kids, and it's about them being victimized in our province. And if we're not standing together united on this, um, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side. And uh, But he actually took the time um, to write a nine-point plan 
on his own, um, not, you know, pitch it off to some intern to do it. Uh, and that was impressive to me. Um, and that was the first question that I, I had for him is, you know, you know, I jealously guard and, and work on behalf of people who um, have been trafficked. Um, why is this important to you? And, uh, and, you know, he had been exposed to the issue of trafficking over 20 years ago um, at a conference in, in uh, Russia. And uh, it just was something that never left him. So I'm thankful that he gave us the opportunity. I'm um, very uh, looking on with great interest to see uh, what the government will do with the recommendations that we've uh, handed forward. And uh, I hope that that will end up uh, raising the bar. Alberta is interesting um, because of our laws um, and the way that they protect children. Uh, we have the opportunity to actually set the bar for uh, the fight against human trafficking for the entire country. And uh, I'm uh, hopeful that that is something that will happen and will be picked up on the federal level uh, in the future. Um, I, it, ha- it has to happen for the sake of uh, our kids and, and for the sake of uh, what's going on in, in, uh, in the trafficking realm. You've had these conversations and yet we don't hear about it on the news. We don't hear about it in political speeches. We just don't hear about it. Is it just too ugly of, an asu- of a subject? Why do you think politicians avoid talking about it? I think that people don't believe that it happens. I think that they think it's a conspiracy theory. Um, and, you you know, I've always said it's a little bit like a, an information grenade. You know, you throw it out there and you wait for a bit and, and eventually it's going to go off. But it takes a while for most people to really um, internalize it. Um, you know, I, I think the, the aha moment for me, um, and I think everybody has this um, when it comes to the issue of trafficking, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're going to get to a point where it, it actually, you internalize it, it takes time and then there's an aha moment. And, you know, I'd seen that documentary, I'd been to the trip, um, the first trip to Cambodia, but it wasn't until my second trip back, we went to an area called Svepak, um, which was known at that time for being um, uh, one of the worst of the worst areas for child trafficking. And there was a California-based businessman that was building a three-story sex destination hotel in this area. Across the street, there was a warehouse that was full of children who were being drugged during the day to sleep and then given amphetamines at night and taken off to work in brothels in the area. Um, He, it was, it was a place of death. It was horrendous, you know. I I just want to dig in a little bit. Uh, When these conversations come up, um, I think it's important to always mention the age range that we're talking about and also call it what it is people paying for rape yes paying to rape children yes which i th- i heard you use that language i think on theo's show yeah um and i think it's important to always use that uh language so yes. uh to that people have so a three-story hotel yes. so people could rape children and what is the age range uh we were talking about of these kids well yeah you know i i um i met a little girl that day in that dusty street um and you could identify which kids were being trafficked because they had marks of ownership, piercings, and those kinds of things, like literally. And um, she was six years old. You know, she's being sold six to eight times a night. And I, I just, um, I saw her, and I thought to myself, what am I going to tell my daughter that I did about this? Because someday she's going to be old enough to hear these stories, and she's going to say, Daddy, what did you do? And I thought, what am I going to teach my son, you know, about how to interact with and respect women? Um, that was a crossroads moment for me. 
um, because I knew that with that knowledge came responsibility. And, um, you know, we stood up against that guy. There's a lot of organized crime in that area, and there was a big group of us that were there, and he saw us working in that area. And when you stand up to bullies, they get nervous. That's just the way that it works. And, yeah, and bullies are always cowards. They are. And, and uh, so he decided he was just going to cut his losses and go build a building somewhere else. So he put the building on the market. It was almost finished, so we bought it, and we turned it into a school and a health clinic and a church. And, uh, and you know, I went back four years later. That whole community had changed. You know, it went from literally they were burying some of the kids that had, been, had died and been used up in, in the sex industry behind that building when we were there. When we got back, that was a memorial and a playground. There were kids playing in the streets. There was a pride of ownership. People were painting their houses. Kids were singing. And it was life. And it was because, you know, somebody said, you know, we're going to draw this line. You can't do that here. You can't do that to these kids. And we're going we're gonna to stand up to you. And I, th- I think that's the kind of resolve that's required. Um, but when people hear about that here in Canada, they're like, oh, yeah, that's somewhere else. Well, the reality is, is that 93% of trafficking victims in Canada are Canadian. They don't come from some other country. The average age of being trafficked in Canada is 13 years old. Um, younger for indigenous populations. Um, you know, indigenous people make up 4% of Canada, um, but they represent over 50% of trafficking victims in our country. Because they're the most vulnerable. Well, it's, you know, trafficking is an outcome of vulnerability. Um, it, it really, um, it, it, you know, we talk about you know, movies that, you know, have depicted trafficking like Taken. It doesn't generally happen like that. Um, it's very unusual for there to be these snatch and grabs. It's more often... You know, a 13-year-old a, a girl who looks at her shoes a lot and, and uh, maybe has low self-esteem, esteem, and someone notices that and walks up to her on the C-train in Calgary and says, hey, you know, I was abused too, just to sort of get in her head, just taking a shot, maybe, right? Well, if he, if he gets in, um, then he buys her some gifts, he takes her out on some trips, he does some different, you know, takes her to some movies, gets her some clothes, that kind of thing. Um, I, he identifies immediately, they're great, these traffickers, at identifying those vulnerabilities. And then about a month later, now you owe me, and this is what you're going to do. And that's often the dynamic that happens, and, and it, it just really uh, will mess with a young person's head in believing at first that this person cares about me. And uh, and then all of a sudden having the tables turned in that way, it's uh, it's a, a horrific crime. How do we sex or rape proof our kids? Uh, like for my boys, when um, their mom and I uh, split, and there was a guy living in the uh, in their house in, in the basement as a renter, uh, I was it was just plain talk with them because I mean they're just little, like four and six or whatever, and I says. Uh, if he ever wants to show you his penis, you say no. <laughs> and if he ever wants to touch yours, you say no. I'm telling my dad. Yeah. And if he ever says, don't tell your dad, you tell your dad. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just plain talk. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't talked to that way as a kid. Yeah. Um, is, is that the cure? Yeah, I think that it's, you know, age-appropriate conversations. Um, I think that... Um, situational awareness for a, a parents is really important. Um, you know, I, I see our cell phones just laying here and, and, um, you know, they really, I think that it's important for parents to start to look at your cell phone like a loaded weapon. It, it really is the things that children can access, um, and be, um, exploited through on a cell phone. It's mind blowing. You know, the, the, the largest, um, 
So what's the path there, Paul? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like video games is one, right? Yeah, so... How do they do it? So video games, um, there's one uh, in particular called uh, Roblox, Roblox that... Um, um, uh, kids uh, can be instant messaged through. Um, also, um, Snapchat and Instagram are two of the most uh, common that are used in Alberta, in particular, uh, for traffickers to reach out to young people. Often they'll pose as young people themselves and suggest um, a meetup or um, suggest that the child send them um, nude pictures of themselves. And then... Um, and we'll, that's where all the child porn comes from, all these well, little clips. And, and, and they'll use the clips to then say, if you don't then give me another one, I'll tell your parents, or I'll kill your sister, or I'll do this, or whatever. And then, the, and then the kids just end up you know, getting in deeper and deeper. And so I think <clears throat> helping our kids to understand, you know, you know, when I talk to kids in schools about it, those stranger dangers, um, I think is a really easy way to talk to them about, you know, if someone's talking, to you or making you feel uncomfortable in any way online, um, you need to tell a person in authority right away. You tell your parents, you, you tell them no, um, and you shut it off and you step away. Um, and uh, it's, an, it's a really important thing for kids to understand today, for sure, and for parents and for teachers and those education pieces. You know, we started an organization about five years ago called Not In My City. Um, people can go to notinmycity.ca and uh, we get a lot of information there, but um, there's a um, sort of a human trafficking 101 educational program there. And uh, it's free. It takes about 20 minutes. And it c- kind of gives you the Coles notes on what you need to know and, uh, and how you can address the issue of human trafficking um, and, and, you know, uh, stand up against it. Thank you, Manny, for, saying, for, for the shout-out and Corey Heft for the shout-out. And uh, just seeing if they got any comments come, uh, popping up. It's cool. <clears throat> I'm literally getting choked up. <laughs> it's, this yeah, is the third show I've done on the topic. Yeah. Uh, first one was with Craig Sawyer, um, and then then another one, and, and now this one. Um, the cognitive dissonance of people, that they it just couldn't happen to me. It couldn't happen to my kids. It couldn't happen to... Because nobody ever wants to think that um, they're a negligent parent, right? Right. Um, we all want to think that we're good parents. And if you've ever seen a singing competition, we all want to think we're good singers too. <laughs> but uh, between the two of us, uh, uh, there's only one of us that can sing. So, Well, I don't know. That My Heart Has a History is pretty good. My heart has like a history. You got that dig. My, my. Well, now, if you could teach that, that would be something. That's your unique signature piece there is getting that... <laughs> that, that that low rumble at the bottom. That's right. That's the Paul Brand signature <laughs> sound right there. But um, you got a great range, by the way, because you can go all the way from like the basement yeah. to the rafters to the high, yeah. and, and everything. Have you ever done falsetto? Oh, for sure. Oh, so you yeah, can do yeah. the whole damn Woo! gambit. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And then down here. <laughs> Give me a freaking whiplash <laughs> listening to that. Oh, God. Um what are the solutions, Paul? Like, how how do we break through uh, Craig Sawyer's uh, documentary? Have you seen it? I haven't yet. I'll have to so, check it out. Yeah. So I'll send it to you, Thank you. and uh, then beg you to retweet we retweet the bejesus out of it. Craig, okay. um, you're getting like ten shoutouts here today. It's good, um, but it, it's a really good documentary, and in it. it during the making of this docu- documentary, um, his daughter was raped. Mm. Like, Jesus Christ, you know. Um, and I'm always surprised that guys like, uh, it doesn't have to be a, 
an operator, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, an ex army guy like me. Just some angry dad doesn't kill these sons of bitches. Do you ever hear stories of the angry dads that hunt them down and kill them? Oh you, yeah. I mean, I think that there was actually a case in, in the States here recently where, um, you know, you know, that, that father in that protective mode, you know, um, you know, went in that direction. And, and I, I don't know, like I can hardly blame them. Well, this is the thing, right? Like, like it's such a, a, a horrendous um, abuse and um, use of power. Um, it's, it's disgusting. And I, I think that <clears throat> anything that we see as a vulnerability like that, that we know about in advance, um, I'm just simply like, I mean, we, we stick, we stick, um, light socket plugs and light sockets. So kids don't stick their fingers in there. Right. We do things to protect our children. And, and, and for me, that's the, you know, that's the line in, in, um, in society, um, that we need to be vigilant in guarding and protecting. There's warning labels on plastic bags and buckets to not let your kids play with them. Right. And yet sex trafficking is just ignored because it's too horrific to believe. Yeah, and I, I think those abuses and vulnerability, you know, like trafficking itself is, there's many forms, but it's, you know, it's it's separated up generally into three basic forms of labor trafficking, sex trafficking, and uh, the trafficking of organs. And all of them dehumanize. Um, all of them look at the human body as disposable, um, as, as um, a commodity. Right. And um, I think this is something that we have to defend against in, in our society, because ultimately what it does is it spills down and, and it um, it impacts the most vulnerable. And, uh, you know, you know, I've heard said before that, you know, the way that a society protects its most vulnerable is a great reflection on, on you know, um, what, what it's really valuing and, and its functionality as a society. And when we're allowing children to fall into the gap like what the this, hell? Operation Tango Romeo joined. Um, you know, it's a, it's a bad thing, right? I'll bring it back on the stream here. Yeah, yeah. That was weird. Well, to the video audience, uh, that went, went on and off. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> little red button's good on my studio, so we're good. Yeah, so I, I think that a lot of it is about the solutions. It's about education. Uh, it's about awareness. Um, it's about a willingness to bring resources to bear um, to, to fight this. And, and um, understanding that, you know, I, I mentioned $150 billion a year industry. I mean, we're going to have to bring a lot of resources. It, it needs to involve, you know, the in private sector In the U.S. alone, well. uh, the numbers that were given to me is between 30 and $50 billion industry just in the U.S. Yeah. alone. So people care the most when they think it affects them directly. So what is the messaging, what is the story that we can tell that brings it home to the suburban soccer mom mm. to go, holy shit. Right. This right. could be my. This could be happening in my house or it, with my neighbors. Well, yeah. so I, I know of stories uh, like in, you know, we're sitting here in Okotoks, nice yeah. suburban neighborhood. Um, it could be happening across the street. Yeah, because uh, there was uh, an instance not long ago where the nanny looking after the kids. Well, while you're off at work, guess what your nanny's doing? Mm-hmm. Using the dark web, and people are coming and raping your children mm-hmm. uh, under the. <laughs> And the nanny's cashing in on your kids. Like, this happens. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. And, and I, I think that that's, 
that's the, those are those aha moments. Like I've, you know, I've been to events before where I was invited to come and speak about trafficking. And, um, uh, one of the organizers, um, broke down and started crying while I was speaking because the night before they had to work with the police to intervene on behalf of her daughter. She never thought that she'd ever be in that position. When she invited me to come and speak at that event, um, it wasn't on her radar. And then it all of a sudden became real. Um, so I, I think it's, it, you know, it's not about going around and fear mongering. Like I, you don't, I don't think that you want to go around and, and bring a message like that. There, there's, but the, there's a certain amount of reality. People just got, there, right? All I say is that people got to believe that it could happen to them. They, they do. And, and uh, they also have to believe that there's an opportunity for hope that there's actually something you can do about it. Like it yeah. seems, it feels like this giant, you know, like, well, how am I going to fix child trafficking? Right. But there are things that you can do. And, and, you know, one of the reasons we called the organization not in my city was the first reaction is people say, well, that doesn't happen in my city. But what we want to do is actually be able to say it doesn't happen in, in my city, not in my city. So it was that sort of double meaning that we wanted to go for with that, with that sentence. And, and, um, and that is, it's very common. People first go, couldn't happen here. So we bring them the stats, we bring them the reality, we bring them the stories. You know, the sto- I mean, the stories for me, you know, that's really where it comes down to. You can't argue with personal experience. When you talk to a girl who is 16, who is being trafficked in Ontario, and now she's helping to intervene on behalf of trafficking victims here in Canada, like Carly Church, amazing, amazing person. Um, you can't ignore that. It happens. Love to have an introduction, have her on the oh, show. Oh, she's great. Yeah, she's great. What are the different forms? You mentioned uh, a few different forms of trafficking. We talked a bit about the path about uh, how people are doing it. Um, but there's different types of, of track trafficking that happen right here in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, um, the trafficking that we talked about, especially that impacts, um, vulnerable, uh, children. I think we're just a little bit closer. To oh that. yeah. The, you know, impacts vulnerable children, um, you know, uh, would be more of that sort of boyfriending, um, kind of, uh, you know, process that can happen. Um, these traffickers actually talk about, um, their stables of girls that they have. Like, it's just such a dehumanizing thing. Um, each victim uh, to a, a trafficker is worth about $280,000 per year Jesus per victim. Christ. So big, big money and, and resource. Um, uh, but then the labor trafficking piece and, and uh, vulnerable um, uh, individuals who, you know, um, immigrate to Canada and, uh, you know, m- maybe don't know the language, don't know the systems um, and can be taken advantage of, um, made to work long hours to live on location um, and uh, and not be not be paid. Uh, their uh, ability to leave the country, their passports are controlled by the trafficker. Um, and then Canada is actually, most people don't know about this, but um, Canada is known as a demand country when it comes to organ trafficking and and so you know uh, often we have um you know, limited resources when it comes to uh, uh, organ donation. Um, and this this plays into or, or you know, speaks to uh, what the organ donation system is, is like uh, here in Canada, whether it's opt-in or opt-out. Uh, when you go do your license, uh, right now you have to opt-in. Um, and a lot of people don't want to think about that. You know, the last thing you want to think about is donating your organs. Yeah. Um, you know, in uh, New Brunswick, uh, they actually have an opt-out system. So that automatically you are going to donate your organs if you pass away. Um, I don't think that's such a bad idea. I think that it, it, what it does is it says, you know, um, we're, we're going to make the most out of a horrible situation to bring life to somebody else. And by doing that, 
it decreases the demand for organs. Um, what people do in Canada, um, they can do in Canada if they're on a list and they're not able to get the, um, like a kidney, let's say. Um, often what can happen is they'll travel overseas and they'll get a kidney from a vulnerable person. And uh, there are places around the world where um, people are literally being held in captivity and being used for their organs. And, uh, and the, the, the laws are, are so open in relation to that here in Canada that a person literally can go somewhere else, take an organ from somebody and come back to Canada and still get health care here in Canada. Um, that's, so is this all dark web? Like what's the path for these Johns and the, and the organ recipients? I, I think you'd be pretty amazed at how out in the open it all is. It's just on Facebook. Well, yeah, yeah I've seen instances of that. Yeah. And then they're using codes. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, just the right, the right, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, mode of communication to be able to, you know, just be under the radar enough to make it happen. But it's, you know, these are pretty obvious things. Like, I mean, if you're a, if you're a physician and, and you're in or, organ transplant, um, and somebody comes back all of a sudden and you don't know how they got that kidney, well, you know, chances are they probably got it from some vulnerable person somewhere else in the world. In real estate, we have to fill out a FinTrack. Yes. So uh, FinTrack is to make sure that the funds that are being used to buy the uh, property are not related to crime. Right. Why don't we have something like that medically? So, so fin, FinTrack is, is you know, on the case in some of this. Um, you know, there are also medical medical codes um, that are specific to uh, trafficking. Um, they've never been used in Canada, even though they exist. Um, so that, sh- that speaks to a lack of I've education. I've never seen this on Grey's Anatomy, I don't think. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, look, like we look at what's happened over the pandemic, right? Um, when we want to figure out um, who's been vaccinated, who hasn't been vaccinated, um, who can travel, who can't travel, um, what the statistics are, we have the technology. We can do it. If it's a priority, we can make it happen. And the answer in a lot of ways, aside from educating ourselves and educating our kids, uh, educating law enforcement, uh, educating uh, um, healthcare teachers, um, is data. Data and um, uh, technology. Um, those are two huge tools that we um, are, are underusing in the fight against human trafficking um, that uh, really could make a huge difference. Riddle me this, Paul Brandt. So we know that things like Super Bowl weekend are massive uh, trafficking events. So if the Johns can find the brothels, if why, like, how is it even possible then that there's not law enforcement that's um, busting them all? Well, yeah, that's a great question, and one of the you know one of the comments that you hear from police on um, you know any issue um, you know that has a, a, a moral connection to it in some way or another is we can't arrest our way out of this problem. And, and there, there is some truth to that. I don't think that that's just sandbagging in any way. You know, um, I, I think that um, what I learned in the work that we've done with Not In My City is when you um, engage the community and create a platform for collective action, you just gotta, you gotta create a bucket. You gotta go, okay, we're gonna do this, guys. You ready? Come on, let's go. The community can rally around it. And when the community rallies around it, politicians and police are then um, given the permission, in essence, to be able to go after all of this. But the community is an integral part of it. Private industry is an integral part of it. And I can't overstate this. It's such an important part of the process. When, when everyday Canadians stand up and say, I don't want this to happen here, 
it pushes politicians into having to do something. It's really important for us to understand this. We can't sit around complacent. And I think this extends into every part of Canadian politics. It's easy for us to go, well, let the politicians fix it. Well, I'll let the police fix it. That's their job. It's our job as Canadians to be. Well, we're the be, ones that do the voting. You're right. So we if need if to, the ones talking to the mayors and uh, every police force, especially RCMP, RCMP in particular, work as contractors to yes. a municipality. Yes. Which means um, you're the boss. Yes. So what do we expect from our RCMP? You know, um, it, it's it's up to. The, the municipal leaders to say, okay, so um, what's our allocation of funds here for resources? I have this much for traffic stops and all these revenue generating things. Well, you know what? I think child sex trafficking is a bit more important than photo radar. So how about we relocate? Um, and, and this is the metrics that I want to see. Yeah. You know, and every mayor can do this. Absolutely. Every, every city town council can do this and say, look, um, where, where's your child sex trafficking arrests? That's the number I want to see. I want that on the top of your goddamn list. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, um, it's that, you know, taking Getting it... Getting angry. Get worked well, up here, Paul. a couple steps further. Like, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's about that stepping back from the complacency and going, what would I do if I was in this situation? You know, we hear a lot about personal responsibility in, in you know, conversations about uh, politics, right? And, um, you know, uh, I think that when I, I look back historically at the moment that Canada um, came into its own from um, an identity standpoint, it's probably Vimy Ridge. You know, that's probably the moment where we went, we're a nation. We're standing up. We're standing up for freedom. And, and I, I think that we need a little bit more of that um, blasted into our consciousness as Canadians these days, um, where we go, yeah, I love my country. Yes, I'm proud of what it was built on. Yes, systems can always be improved, but we have a firm foundation in this country, and we're proud of it. And uh, I, I just I want to encourage people who are listening um, to take that, take the, you know, stand in the gap. You know, be willing to stand up and go, this is what I want. And, uh, and jump through the hoops to figure out what you need to do to um, talk to that public official and say, this is what I expect. Um, it's okay to do that. I always teach my kids, don't walk past a job. Yeah, that's good. Don't walk past a job. In, uh, I was a member of PPCLI, yep. but our um, sister regiment was the, is the Royal Canadian Regiment. One of their sayings is, uh, never pass fault. Mm. And uh, bring bringing it down to something more simple. I'm the guy that at the dog park I pick up other people's poop. <laughs> well, there you go. You man. know, you're and a better man than I am. Like, don't, <laughs> like, don't don't like just just because it, you know your dog didn't do it or you didn't do it. Yeah. Like, pick it up. Yeah, make if, it better. If you see a turd, pick it up. Make it better. Yeah, make it better. <clears throat> and um, if we can't do that for our kids, yeah, yeah, that's what it's about. And it's, and it, you know, it's easy to look at it and go, this is super complicated. How are we going to do this? It's as simple as one person at a time being willing to make it better. Well, the, the, the angering, mind-numbing part is back to what I said about Super Bowl weekend. If the Johns can find um, their targets, if they can find them, the cops can find the Johns. Yeah. Like, there's it, there's got to be a way. Um, we just have to put more resources yeah you know and i'd be curious like okay so your budget is 30 million dollars a year mr police force how much is going towards child sex trafficking 
Because if you're going to do a priority action re, uh, approach, uh, just just like in, in first aid, in, you do triage, what are our most important issues here? How can the children uh, being trafficked, being raped for money, not be at the top of everybody's list? Yeah. You know, if it's not number one, it better be number two. But I can't imagine why it wouldn't be number one. It just, it just seems like it's such a... Um a hidden crime. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the dynamic of trafficking is that it's, um, it's a, a low risk, high profit industry, low risk because of what we're talking about. People don't want to talk. They about don't it. talk. They don't, they don't discuss it. It sort of happens in the shadows under the radar and high profit. And, and what we, we try to do in fighting trafficking is shift it to a high risk, low profit industry. <clears throat> I think that there, there will always be people who are, um, you know, trying to be a part of this industry in one way or another, whether they're buyers or sellers. Okay. That's, that's always going to happen, but we want to make it harder. And, uh, and that's a, a part of, you know, what we try to do in having these conversations and bringing this up um, is it, it gets the community to talk to the police. It gets the community to talk to the mayors and to the public leaders. And once that starts to happen, there's this chain of events that starts to roll. And we've seen it here in Alberta. Like I remember talking to high level uh, law enforcement uh, at the beginning of our journey with Not In My City and literally having, having them say trafficking doesn't happen in Alberta. I, I, like I blew my mind. I mean, I had talked. Who said that? There were high level law enforcement in Alberta. And what was interesting. How, how long ago was this? Said, five Paul? years ago. Jesus. Right. And, and that was. God in, help us all. That was in one area of Alberta. This, the same law enforcement uh, outfit in, in a different part of the province, okay, would say, we have so much trafficking, I need more resources, okay? So, so there's a lack of understanding, a lack of communication, a lack of definition. Um, like, like I the would same say a definition. lack of courage. A lack of courage well, to, to, and, to, to, to just call it what it is well, and, and, think, and, and to face it. And, I, and I, think, I think that there's also like this thing where people go, oh, well, what are you talking about here? Like, are you talking about the world's oldest profession? Like, 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 and there's that old school way of looking at what's happening here with modern day slavery, with no, actual We're talking industry. about 10-year-old children getting <laughs> exactly. raped. Exactly. And uh, what, do you know what the ratio is, uh, boys and girls? Like, is it like well, one in ten are boys? Well, or? We're finding that um, the incidence of boys being trafficked is actually a lot higher than than um, than we initially thought, and and it, it does it does definitely happen. Like, I I tend to not be the kind of person who wants to um, put people into groups. Um, I know that there are there are high high risk um, uh, populations. The greatest risk factor of being trafficked in Canada is being a girl. That's the greatest risk factor. But we also know that it, it disproportionately impacts Indigenous people. It's important to have that on your radar. So what uh, is it about uh, the Indigenous community that makes them more vulnerable to being trafficked yeah. by a hell of a margin? Yeah, so uh, that's uh, complicated. But I, I, I think that um, um, the first thing I would say is, a way to make sure that everybody is listening and, and caring about this, trafficking can happen to anybody. It can happen to anybody, okay? Regardless of economic background, regardless of what group you find yourself in. Uh, th- this is something that impacts everybody. I, on the Indigenous front, um, 
you know, I, I wrote a song. <clears throat> it's called Buffalo Bones. It's going to be on my next project. All right. And, um, you know, hi- historically back in the early 1900s, maybe a bit before when the buffalo were being slaughtered on the prairies, um, you know, it was, it was a horrible abuse of one of the most spiritual um, uh, symbols for indigenous people. And often the meat was wasted, the skins were used, and the bones were crushed up. And they were used as uh, industrial lubricants for machines and for um, a paint pigmentation. <clears throat> it was an industry made out of buffalo bones. I'm not playing trivial pursuit with you. And, and Jesus, and, I, and that's a mess. If you were on a steam engine coming from New York to Calgary, you would have seen piles, sometimes three stories high, of buffalo bones. And to me, that that symbol of of abuse, um, of of like just like um, a systematic like, um, an industrial, um, uh, waste, you know, um, is, is really a metaphor for, um, what has happened in the history of, uh, of indigenous people. And you can imagine generationally what that would do. Um, if someone, if someone, um, you know, had, uh, exposed you to that kind of abuse. And, and I think that um, there definitely is um, an aspect of generational trauma that can make Indigenous people um, uh, be, be more vulnerable. Um, and that's something that I think that um, Indigenous communities are addressing. Um, and, uh, and more and more non-Indigenous communities are starting to um, uh, understand and address. And it's important. It's, it's an important part of, um, I think, us working together um, as communities and as people. And um, I, I think that that's definitely one of the dynamics that, um, that can make Indigenous people um, more vulnerable to trafficking, for sure. It reminds me, or brings me back, I've been thinking about this for a lot of our conversation, uh, of the 215. Mm. And how an example of child sex trafficking, in a way, and, and the residential schools just how pervasive the exploitation of children is and always has been. Um, the response to the 215 I, I see again and again is either, well, I know people that went to residential schools and they thought it was great. It did so much for them. They thought it was the best thing ever. Um, or, no, that's a horrible exaggeration. There's no way that kids were killed. Just out and out uh, uh, denial. Um, the response to the idea that, and I think it's because people internalize it as if that happened and it was next door, I feel guilty. Therefore it didn't happen because I can't take personal responsibility for not doing anything about it. Mm. What do you think the psychology is that uh, we just kind of brush it off to the side and we think this is just something that happens in Thailand. This happens anywhere but in my backyard. Yeah, you know, I, I think that anytime someone has victimized another person, especially a, a child, um, there needs to be accountability. And um, I think that it's really important that our our um, our systems of justice um, uh you know, in Canada, we have a restorative justice system, and, and uh, it's about um, people who have victimized other people having opportunities to rehabilitate. And uh, I, I think that there's space for that, but I also think that accountability um, and, um, and punishment um, uh, can, can um, uh, deter 
And uh, I think that's an important part of um, uh, justice around the world. And it's kind of a no-brainer. If you're going to get your hand smacked, you're probably not going to do it. And I, I think that that's a, um, something that is really important. Um, for me, um, I really believe that um, you know, it's, a part of, it's a part of my own personal belief system that I'm to stand up for the most vulnerable, um, that I'm to look for opportunities um, to identify people who other people are passing over um, and, uh, and to try and help, to try and, like you were saying before, make it better. And, uh, and I, I think that that's everyone's personal journey. You got to figure that out for yourself. Are you going to be the kind of person who's going to look back from your grave someday and go, yeah, I'm just going to be about me? Or are you going to be the kind of person that's going to look back and go, I did everything I could to make it better? And then what are your motivations behind that? Um, so when I think about the 215, when I, when, I, when I think about anybody who's been victimized, um, I think to myself, well, I want to press in closer to that. I want to find a way to understand that better. Um, I, might not, I might not agree with um, um, everybody's approach on how to address it, Right. Because that, like, like the agent for change is really important. You got to figure out what you believe about that. What is going to change it and make it better? Um, but that doesn't mean I'm going to ignore it. You know, even if I disagree with how we're going to address the issue, um, let's press into it. I'm not going to be afraid of that. I think one of the biggest things is for people to recover out loud. It's one of my taglines. It's mm. on my T-shirt. It's good. Recover out loud and to say it out loud. Uh, I wasn't able to admit until my mid to late 40s uh, that I was molested as a child from mm. the age of 7 to 12. Mm. Now I say it on the show all the time and I keep wondering if my parents are ever going to watch because they have no idea. <laughs> are they going to watch well, one of my shows and hear this? And they're going to like, what the hell are you talking right. about? Who did that to you? And uh, I'll, I'll tell them if they ever ask me. Yeah. But that happened. Um, but I was so ashamed of it. Uh, for 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 so many reasons, I couldn't say that. Oh, hey, Terry, that uh, man tractor just walked into the office. Uh, he found me. He in, finally the house. found me. Be- before I go any further on, on what we're doing, Terry, in 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 the kitchen, the there's a coffee machine on. If it's not on, just press the on. And then uh, to the right is is the coffee cups. And uh, help yourself, brother. <laughs> but um well i like you're saying like i think that um secrets only have as much power as we give them that's they, it yeah. and uh it eats you up yeah. uh, actually theo flurry's got a um you're only as sick as your secrets yeah you're only as sick as your secrets shine light on them and they lose their power if you think it's hard to say it out loud uh try keeping it a secret yeah it'll eat you from the inside you're out right uh, in ayahuasca ceremonies, there's a uh, thing called purging. And it's like, well, I don't want to do that and be pooping and, and puking all over the place. <laughs> but they're actually pooping and puking out their traumas. Mm. You know, uh, like it comes out of you physically wow. because the body keeps the score. And it, it's in you somewhere. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, I don't want to poke that bear. I don't want to touch that. You know, don't want to uh, disturb a sleeping dog. No, no, no. That yeah. dog ain't sleeping. Yeah. The dog ain't sleeping. Yeah. It's in you somewhere. And it, it's stored in your body. That trauma is there. The uh, ignoring it doesn't help. It just festers. I agree. You know, um, and even and this is going to sound woo woo to a lot of people, but unresolved tra- uh, trauma is is shown to result in cancer and other kinds of um, autoimmune diseases. You know, because you're you just cannot 
function the way that you, because of all this trauma that is in your body. Yeah. Um, you got to deal with it. You got to face it straight on. You got to poke that bear. Yeah. yeah. You have to. Yeah. Or it'll rot the bones. It will. Yeah. Yeah, brother. <laughs> What's next for you? Well, I'm writing, um, you know, these last uh, couple of years through the pandemic, one of the first things that I um, always ask before I create anything is what does the world need? Mm. And uh, it's been hard to figure that out. You know, what people are looking for, do they they want something to make them laugh or just cut loose? Or do they want to kind of dive into some of the stuff that's been happening? I'm not sure, but I'm starting to get a little bit of clarity towards that. So I'm writing towards that right now. Uh, excited uh, to be doing uh, some of my very first shows in, in two years uh, coming up here really soon. Um, so we're getting out and getting the band up to do some of that. And, nice. and uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I'll be hitting you up for some backstage passes. Come on, man. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to be, be playing up in, uh, in Edmonton in August. Excited about that. That'll be one of the closest ones to here for a while. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about the future. You know, I, I love uh, playing music and just being around people and hanging out. So it's, it's going to be great. Um, next tour, maybe next year, we're starting to look at that um, to go right across the whole country again. And, uh, and then other than that, I'm just a dad, man. I'm just chasing my kids around. And How slammed is your schedule in August? Um, it's, it's not horrible on the music side of things. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to like for, for a live performance, but I'm trying to really dial in on, on writing right now. So I'll probably be doing quite a bit of that. Well, I asked him about August cause the rolling barrage will be coming through here in August. Okay. Uh, so that's the, um, coast to coast relay ride for PTSD awareness oh, and, cool. and, and fundraising. Oh, it's cool. the sixth year, I think. Oh, wow. I, I've rode four of those years i think very cool and um a lot of people just do one leg yep uh some people do the full pull coast to coast wow and it's <laughs> paul we get police escort right through uh last year i did okotoks which is the best reception in the country by yeah. the way yeah. they'll, they'll never say that but i'll say that because <laughs> so i went from winnipeg to okotoks one year and wow. then last year was okotoks to vancouver yeah um, the, the warm welcome across from town to town to town is insane, but Okotoks kicks all their butts. That's cool. So they'll never say that, but I will, uh, like the cross ladders of the fire uh, trucks and all that, as the bikes are rolling through, it is something else, but I'd love to have you cool. join us. Well, for, let me know for, if, for it work, if, if it works, that'd be fun. That'd be really fun. Oh, it's so good. But having the police escort, when we went into uh, Vancouver, the Vancouver traffic was something else. I bet. Well, there were six lanes of traffic, Paul, and we got all the cops in de- de- dead center plowing the road and watching all the, <laughs> the wedge. Yeah, the wedge. <laughs> and it was like parting of the Red Sea. That's all the vehicles so cool. were going <laughs> off to the side and all the cranky people in their Teslas that were like, I hate motorcycles. Hey, eh? like, look at that carbon footprint. And why do they get the special treatment? What the hell's going on so here? Good. No, it was so great. Fun. Fun. Yeah. Well, that's good. I enjoyed that carbon footprint quite a bit. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, brother, I think we're about there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to shine some light on this issue. And you know, I hope people will check out the work that we're doing at notinmycity.ca. And uh, I wish you all the best. I hope we get a chance to get together again soon, whether it's uh, on that ride or maybe we'll just go hit Highway 40. Oh, hell yeah. Be good. I'll come pick you up and uh, we'll we'll do that ride. It, it It's a gorgeous. Have you done it on the bike before? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my God, it's so Fun. good. It's got to be my favorite. <laughs> but there's some loops around here too that um, uh, that I wanted to take you on. Yeah. These loops that you probably don't know about. Okay. That are flipping spectacular. We'll close out with a Theo story. Okay. And he's going to be mad that I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> 
So uh, Theo's got uh, that, that fast Harley, um, the, the one that's kind of slick, okay. uh, like a hot rod Harley. Okay, yeah. I forget the name of it. Uh, V-Rod. Oh, V-Rod, yeah. So he's got a V-Rod. And I'm like, hey, man, come on. Let's go. Let's go for a ride. He's like, oh, my bike's not running. And I'm not very mechanically inclined. I did, the battery's dead. I said, is that all? Really? Right. Dude. We can fix that. Yeah, we could fix that. I said, tell you what. <laughs> um, pick the date. I'll show up with a battery. I'll, I'll install it for you, right? Because it's, it's just not a problem for this guy. And then we'll go for a ride. He's like, shit, all right. So we do this. I pick up the battery, and uh, he's already got the bike pulled apart. And actually, it's a good thing I did it because uh, I, I had to, it was a bit of a head scratcher. It's underneath the tank. Okay, yeah. Uh, for these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get the bike running. His wife, Elle, comes out and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so she, she's going to ride with Theo. I'm like, uh, my bike's a lot more comfortable, but okay. <laughs> and it was a bit of a chilly day and he's got no wind protection. Yeah. So we go for a ride. And I'm wondering, why is he going so damn slow? Like, I'm doing the speed limit here, and then I'm doing 20 under the speed limit, and I'm like, what the hell, Theo? Are they get old granny? Like, what's going on? <laughs> He's riding so damn slow. And uh, we come into Okotoks, and then up to uh, Millerville, Turner Valley, and uh, then back to um, uh, to Black Diamond, and he's frozen solid. Oh, they, no. they both are. Uh. And so we stop at the hotel at Black Diamond, and I'm like, I got this, because I got all the extra gear. I'm warm as could sure, be. Sure. Like, I, I'm good to go. Yeah, I got yeah. wind protection, brother. I'm good. So I, I, I suit them up and uh, with gloves and I, like I had it all, yeah. you know, I had like a winter kit in my uh, soldier, right? Yeah. I'm good. Sure. Um, so like, okay, we're good. So, so are you sure you want to go all the way to Longview? Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to go to Longview. So we go to Longview and uh, <laughs> we get to Longview. We're at the gas station and then Theo says to me, look at my front tire. Is that normal? I look. He's been right. The reason he was riding so slow the whole way, yeah. he's riding on two flat tires. Oh no! The whole time. Oh no! But they were low. They were low profile, so we can get away with it without the bead coming without off. Without seeing it. Oh man! But so the whole ride, he was on. So it was like riding on spoons. Oh, brutal! And there was no air in Longview. Oh no! So they 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 limped it back to um, uh, to Black Diamond. I filled up his tires for him. He's like, oh well, that's new. <laughs> And I said to L, his wife, I said, you sure you don't want to ride with me? It might be a bit safer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I got room. Well, we'll make sure we, we gas him up and air him up before we take him out next time. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Hey, maybe the three of us will uh, be we'll do a ride. That'd be fun. It'd be good. All right. Well, Man Tracker just walked in the house. Thank you. Thanks for that. Paul, thank you so much. It was fun. All right, brother. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring. Hi, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by the Veterans Association Food Bank. You can find them at veteransassociationfoodbank.ca. They are dedicated to supporting and enriching the lives of veterans and their families. As a community of veterans helping veterans, they support the base where together they create healthy and resilient futures. 
they do more than just feed veterans in need. There's all kinds of programs that they have to support the veteran community. So please consider giving. VeteransAssociationFoodBank.ca.